Well, welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I am so glad that you have come along. Look, we have a great show for you today. I'm excited about our guest. He's somebody I've wanted to connect with for a long time now, but it just hasn't worked out. But finally, we have him coming. It's uh, three or four books later after I first was introduced to him, but it's going to be there in just a second. I'm going to introduce you to him in just a second because this podcast is brought to you first. I want to make sure you know this information by Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we're developing trusted leaders for faithful churches. And we're a little excited now that we are an approved institution by the of the Global Methodist Church, and we're the first institution that's approved to offer a course of study for students. And we have over 100 students who in the last six weeks have signed up for that course of study. In addition to our regular degrees uh, from bachelor's, master's, doctoral degrees, we would love for you to think about coming to Wesley Biblical Seminary. We're fully online, but there's an in-person function if you're in the Jackson, Mississippi area. We would love to connect with you. Secondly, I'm thankful to WPO Development and their CEO, Keith Waters, who has done successful capital campaigns for more than 250 institutions, churches, schools, all nonprofits all over the country. They do a great job on mission planning studies, feasibility studies, and of course, capital campaigns. So you can find out more about them at WPO Development, and you can find a link to them in my show notes. And also two quick things from andymillerthird.com. That's andymillerii.com. Since we put this content out here and we're able to kind of do some other things, I, I bring some people on who help me edit some videos and that sort of work. We finally have a donate button. So some people have been asking about it and you can go to my website and you can help support the podcast. We'd love to have you kind of check in with some things with us. And if, you not, if you're not already signed up for my email list, I'd love for you to sign up for that list where every couple of weeks or so we send out fresh content. And if you sign up for that list, you will get my free resource, which is five steps to deeper teaching and preaching, which is an it's an eight-page PDF document and a 45-minute teaching that I would love for you to have. All right. Well, now I'm excited to welcome to the podcast Dr. Matthew Bates, who serves as a professor at the University of Quincy, and that's Quincy, Illinois, where my parents served for seven years. So we already have a connection, Matthew, don't you? You know my parents. I do. Um, thank you, Andy, for having me. And yeah, I, I really enjoyed the couple times I met your parents uh, as your dad um, certainly had a powerhouse personality, made an enormous impact at the Croc Center here in Quincy. My children were involved there in the music program a bit. Uh, so we got to know him a little through that. Yeah, it's fun. It's it's rare. I mean, when I when I first learned of your work and I just I looked at the back of the, of the book and I saw University of Quincy, that can't possibly be the same 20,000 person town. Yeah, but it is. Yeah. So Matthew, I've really appreciated your work through the years. I first came in touch with your book, Salvation by Allegiance Alone. And I imagine that might've been the many people's first entree to you. And I, I'll tell you, there are words that I use today differently because of your academic writing and now some of your kind of more practical writing for the church. So thanks so much. A lot of this is connected though to the same title of, of a new book you have coming out called Why the Gospel. And you focus a lot on the word gospel. What's the, what's the challenge with that word as we use it in English? Yeah, well, I think the challenge is especially a challenge that connects to um, many of our church experiences as we grow up hearing the gospel. We know the gospel is important. It is, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And I think that we don't want to neglect the gospel, and we're aware that it's important. But we are, I think, taught uh, in many of our churches a very transactional um, form of the gospel, and that the gospel's purpose is often framed in a direction that 
um, maybe isn't as helpful or as accurate as it could be framed from a New Testament perspective. And I think how it's traditionally framed is uh, around a debt problem that we have or a forgiveness problem that we have, that um, we are like not in a right relationship with God. Uh, we need to get restored into a right relationship with God through Jesus's death. And Jesus's blood gets applied to our account. And then um, once that happens, then we're right with God and we get to go to heaven. That's the way the gospel has often been presented, that we just need to trust that message to be true. And that trusting that message to be true is the essence of the gospel. Um, now, that, that basic transactional gospel contains a lot of truth, but it's actually not what the New Testament calls the gospel. And that's, that's caused a lot of the confusion. Um, is what the New Testament calls the gospel is is connected more to Jesus's kingship, and some of those implications follow from Jesus's kingship. Uh, but whenever we begin to call things that are gospel that are not the gospel, uh, we just end up with a lot of confusion. So part of the purpose of these writings has been to um, help the church to alleviate some of this confusion and to empower a, a more authentic discipleship in our churches. Amen. And it's not just the, the gospel. It's not you're refuting that those points are a part of the gospel, but you describe it as something broader. And, and you say it not just it's not just your description. You're trying to excavate, so to speak, like what the New Testament is saying. Like, And it was really helpful. One of the points that you helped me see was even Jesus's preexistence as a part of the gospel narrative and then and, and moving through all of his his life his his um his teaching all the way to his even descent to the realm of dead to his ascension and ultimately like the reason you point to kingship is so important is that this is the culmination of the gospel and and that's been helpful actually i'll tell you like one of the reasons that it's been it had made an impact on me is i sign all my emails um for the king now right mm. because I, I like i i realize like i want to put my connection in Jesus, not Jesus's ascension, but also his exaltation. Tell, like, is that is that kind of getting the big picture of where you're going? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I I speak about the gospel um, in a variety of ways. I mean, we could summarize it as simply as just saying that the gospel is Jesus is the Christ. That's actually the most common way the New Testament presents the gospel. They just use that bare description. Jesus is the Christ. We would see this, for instance, instance in Acts five. 42, right, where um, it's a description of the early church's activities. It says that the, you know, that, the, that they were busy teaching and gospeling. They use actually the verb form, gospeling, Jesus is the Christ. That's what they were busy doing, right? And so that's the, the essence of their message. I like to qualify that just a little bit by, by describing what kind of king, Jesus the victorious king, Jesus the mm. saving king. So my most common summary for the gospel would be to say that Jesus is the saving king. Um, and then you're right, we can go beyond that and fill that in even more. Um, and when we do, I think we're, we're really just trying to track the outline of how the New Testament presents the gospel. And so in terms of method, what I did in, in, in crafting this study was I really went through and looked at all the places in the New Testament where we have a queer definition of the gospel. Um, and in so doing, looked look to see what happens when we put these all together. And we end up with a narrative about Christ and that it does begin, as you say, with Jesus pre-existing alongside God the Father, right? But then the Father sends the Son. Right. And so that's really the, the starting point of the gospel is the father sending the son. Uh, and then we call this the incarnation when he takes on human flesh. Right. And um, and that's important, actually, in, in ways that are often neglected. And I get into this, especially in this new book, Why the Gospel, is that this is what begins to reveal the glory. 
And that's really critical. Like with the glory, the revelation of God's glory is, is actually critical to our salvation in ways that we often miss. Uh, and then, of course, after Jesus is incarnated, he proceeds to live a, a, a great human life as uh, the, the example of what it means to be fully human, dies for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, is buried, raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and then is seen by many witnesses. And then finally, like, yeah, the point that is often neglected in gospel teaching today is that after that, Jesus then ascends to the right hand and begins to rule as the king. And that is actually so much part of the gospel um, that that is what makes him the Christ in the final full sense, right? We see this in Acts chapter two at the end of Peter's Pentecost sermon, right. when he talks about Jesus being made Lord and Christ, right, after his ascension. Uh, and so then, then, the, then the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit, uh, and then Jesus will return. So we see that Trinitarian framework, right? We have the Father who sends the Son, and then the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. And so the gospel is closely related to the doctrine of the Trinity and vice versa. But that's how I would speak about the gospel. Yeah, interesting. So you you kind of make some suggestions, too, about the song, the meaning of the song, In Christ Alone. You want to hit on that a little bit, how you highlighted that in the book? Yeah, so we have to be careful with our our Christ language, and I think in in both professional theological studies, in the classroom, in preaching, um, in our songs, um, we tend to speak a lot about in Christ this, in Christ that, and that's deeply biblical language. Sure, so sure. I mean, I fully endorse it, right? On the one hand, but on the other hand, the way that it gets mobilized in a lot of discussions, even even you know intense theological discussions is to treat Christ as if that is just another way of speaking about Jesus's name, as if it's just a name. Right, like last name Like in Christ alone. What did you say? Like as if it's his last name or something. Jesus. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we have first name Jesus, last name Christ, or that like when we talk about in Christ, we're talking about a specific person. It's, it's not quite right, because what we're talking about is actually an office that's held by a person. And that's right. different, right? Um, uh, if, if you're, you know, the president of the United States, if I refer to you as the president, right, that's quite different than if I if I refer to you as Joe Biden. Like if I just say, "Hey, Joe," right, or if right, I say, right. "Hey, president," right, that's those are quite different valences of meaning. And so, what's happened is that in a lot of our theological discussions, uh, we have sometimes uh, had some slippage, right, where we speak about things that are. Um, in Christ, but we've lost the royal overtone to all that. We like we don't realize it's kingly language, and we begin to just think about a person rather than a king, right? Uh, and rather, yeah, yeah. or rather than a kingly office that's held by a person. Like we have to keep an attachment to that royal language because it's really the essence of the gospel. And you're not talking about a distinction like a Boltmannian type of distinction between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. This is more or less like what happens, like when we when you use the word Christ, this is what happens in to the totality of the gospel, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm using it in the sense that like when Jesus, I, here's, a, here's a way of putting it, that like we often just think that that. Jesus is the Christ is like sort of an eternal category for Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, there's some difficulties there. Like on the one hand, we would want to say that God uh, had in mind a king before time even began, that in the Christ we were chosen before the beginning of the world, right? Before creation itself, right? Paul uses that kind of language in Ephesians, right? But notice it's in the king, like there's a title there. It's like in the Christ. Now, we didn't know who that Christ would happen to be, what, what human would end up occupying that office. We find out in time, eventually it's Jesus who comes, who occupies that office, right? And that there's a process he has to go through 
to become the Christ within history. Now, on the one hand, he's chosen to be the Christ, right. but on the other, he doesn't actually assume that office because he doesn't have a throne. He doesn't, when he's first born, he's only the Christ in some sort of anticipatory sense, right? He has to actually become the Christ in history. And that happens actually at his baptism. That's the moment where he actually within history becomes the Christ, because to be the Christ means to be the anointed one. That's when he's actually anointed and the Holy Spirit comes upon him and he's Messiah. He's christened, right? That's when he becomes Jesus the Christ in an official capacity. But even then, he's like the prince in waiting, right? He mm, hasn't actually come to fully be installed at the right hand of God. It's only after his death and his resurrection through which he wins the victory that then he's installed at God's right hand, becoming the Christ in the ultimate fullest sense, right? So yeah, we're not making a distinction between the Christ of history and the Christ of faith. Like we're seeing this as a historical process itself, right? There's a historical process of Jesus becoming the Christ. Yeah. Awesome. Now, I, I jumped ahead of myself a little bit. Your, your other books, After Salvation by Allegiance Alone, you had Gospel Allegiance, which is your also kind of emphasizes one of the key words that you have helped the Christian community see is like the way the uh, Greek word pistis or pistu, um, pistuo has been used. Uh, to and you suggest many times it could be translated allegiance, but then you also have the gospel precisely. Those books are mm -hmm. kind of um, your your take at what is the gospel. But the big shift in this new book that you have is why the gospel. That, so as we're thinking about this, we've, we're thinking about the kingship already. But what's with the title? Why? What are you going for? Like, what are you trying to do with this change of um, from the what is the gospel to the why the gospel? Yeah, it comes out of an urgency to reframe. And I think um, I'm, I'm trying to think like, how can I help uh, myself, like my church, you know, communities around me? Um, how can I help us reframe the gospel? And I, I came to the conviction that it's not so much the what of the gospel. There's some problems there, right? And we just talked about some of the issues, right? Um, but it's partly that, that the gospel itself is understood in the wrong framework, Right, and that we need to correct that framework, and and that's like the heavy lifting that really needs to be done. So on the one hand, um, I just think it's also an underexplored question. People tend to assume the answer, like, mm. well, we know why God gave the gospel it's because sinners. we need forgiveness. Yeah, we're sinners, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so that God's got to correct the sin problem, and so therefore the gospel. Uh, but mm -hmm. that's actually not what Scripture says. Like, that's not. Um, I mean, Scripture does say we need forgiveness, and that is part of the purpose of the gospel. But that's not exclusively what Scripture says, nor is it its deepest answers, right? Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to um, like do a study that was like a multifaceted look at the question: What does the Bible say about the gospel's purposes? Um, and um, and there are many purposes to the gospel. I think we could say that as we read through Scripture uh, that would be delineated there. Um, but um, the one that's um, uh, perhaps like most explicit on the one hand is good, and uh, the most explicit purpose is that um, is, is actually articulated by Paul in Romans 1.5 and then again in Romans 16.26, and that is the purpose of the gospel is for the obedience of pistis in all the nations. Hmm. And, and this is for the obedience of loyalty or the obedience of allegiance, right? So for allegiant obedience in all the nations, that's actually the main purpose of the gospel. Uh, whenever the Bible says, like, what's the explicit purpose? That's what's given. Um, and that's something we don't tend to think about, right? We tend to think, well, it's about for forgiveness. So it's actually, it's actually for, for a purpose that's more about us, like, Amen. lining up under the king's banner. Uh, so I think that's powerful. Um, but I think um, the other the other thing that actually uh, that uh, emerged for me that even surprised me a little bit 
as I began to study was how often the motif of glory appeared and not yeah. just that the gospel was for God's glory, but also for human glory. Interesting. Um, and yeah. so that, that I did a lot of thinking about that. And a lot of the book is purpose toward articulating uh, a theology of glory and how that connects to salvation. Okay, I want to come back to glory in just a second, but back to kind of the, the purpose of the gospel, as you said, articulated the beginning and ending of Romans. In the tradition I come from, the Salvation Army, we have an article of faith that likely made its way into the kind of short 11 articles that we have because of a, like moving against the perseverance of the saints, that, that, that kind of doctrine. And But I think there's actually, and you helped me with this too, in Salvation by Allegiance alone, I feel like there's more power to it. I'm going to recite it for you. It says, we believe that continuance in a state of salvation now that might, uh, depends upon a continued obedient faith, right? Mm -hmm. this, this idea mm -hmm. of an obedient faithfulness. Mm -hmm. Like, I think there's something to that that's helpful th to looking at the entire process. And some people say, oh, well, that's just a statement of uh your of of the fact that you can lose your salvation well maybe maybe that's even what the original uh authors had in mind but i think of it as more of this dynamic relationship of something that can happen in somebody's life that we have the opportunity to continually access this type of faithfulness any response to that idea of the, the words obedient faith going next to each other Oh, I love that. Yeah. I mean, obviously we see that in the New Testament where it's called the obedience of faith. And so, yeah, if we wanted to get really tactical with, with regard to Greek analysis, um, I would see that as a, an adjectival genitive construction that mainly intends loyal obedience or allegiant obedience. So that would go right in line, I think, with, with the, yeah, the idea of a faithful obedience or obedience of faith, right? Like they're all, it's all kind of synonymous there. I would see that that is a, a very close articulation to, uh, yeah, my book's uh, intention. And that's also kind of connected to the idea of works as well. Like that, that works just naturally flow from this. It's not that we're working to save ourselves and, and, but, but it's like this regular outpouring of in response to what's happening in our life. Yeah, I think you you actually um, articulate that pretty well um, as saying it's an outflow, but even like more, we could say it like I like when you said kind of continual outflow, because the idea is that it's like that I think that we would want to understand it works as being part of faith from the ground up. I think that's a better articulation than what we find in certain theological circles like that. Um, that by definition, faith is something relational and externalized, that the best studies of the New Testament, and these aren't my studies, like Teresa Morgan, for instance, uh, a, a professor at Oxford has re re recently written an enormous book on faith. And one of her main conclusions is that faith is relational and externalized. Um, when we understand it in that way, right, it, it means that it involves our embodiment from the get-go. It's not something that first our minds do and then our bodies follow suit. It's, it's something that's relational and embodied from the start. So I think that when we have that in view for the New Testament, it helps us to make sense of the faith works issue uh, in a cleaner way. So I think that the New Testament guild as a whole is um, coming to a sharper articulation about uh, the, the true relationship between faith and works. Yes, it's great. I'm uh, I'm excited. Later this summer, another book is coming out by Baker uh, with Tom McCall, Caleb Friedman, and mm. Matt Friedman. 
Mm-hmm. They're, they're all connected to our institution. Matt Friedman shares a wall with me. His son, Caleb, and, and Tom McCall are graduates of mm-hmm. Wesley Biblical Seminary. Have you, are you familiar with that book already? I or? am. I, I am on the back cover or at all least right. an endorser for the book. So I've already read it. Yeah, it is helpful. Um, and especially, I think, really strong work on the history of um, the doctrine of works. I think that's on the historical yes. framework was the real strength of the book. Yeah, because I think a lot of Protestants misunderstand their heritage. They think Amen. that somehow or another, like salvation is by faith alone and that works have nothing to do with it, which has never been a position at all of, of you know, any Protestant group right, until we get to like modern free grace movements. Um, yeah. And so the historical position, of course, is that works are necessary, usually understood as a confirmation, right, in some way or of the of the reality of, of saving faith and that they're essential. Uh, anyway, yeah, there's a whole rich discussion. Um, yeah, that could be carried yeah. out there. But well, yeah, this I'm is excited highlights. about Tom's book, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's going to be it's going to be great. And I'm, they're going to be on my podcast, too, hopefully here soon. OK, like. Everybody who's listening into this, I just want to encourage you to go to Matthew. You know, if you've never heard of Matthew before now, like Google him and preachers who are listening to this, it's in his work is incredibly enriching and it gives you opportunity to you can just hear how we're talking about words that we use all the time in church world, and it can really deepen your understanding in your own preaching practice. So I just encourage you to check him out. Now Matthew, I'm I'm really excited about what you do in this book too with the word glory, uh, not just with the word, but it's like almost like a, a glory recovery, and I and I love even the the illustrations that you have. I mean, pretty good, like and it, it lays it out pretty well. So tell us what you you kind of hinted at it a few minutes ago, but where are you going with this glory recovery? Yeah, yeah, thanks, and and yeah, part of the heart of the book is also to try to um, help Christians who. Um, are done with church, like they tried it out, or they maybe made a decision at one point, and they walked away, or people who have not engaged the church at all, what are called the nuns and the duns, right? right. And so I have them in view. Um, and part of that, I think, is because often they've heard a wrong, uh, a falsely shaped gospel. And, uh, and, and so they've walked away, maybe for the wrong reasons. And I have some Barna data, group, you know, Barna group data that I walk through that are professional sociological studies as part of all that. But anyway, yeah, I think that at the heart of like the uh, of the proper a proper articulation of the gospel is that the gospel pertains especially to the recovery of human glory too, and that it's not just for God's glory alone, but actually God is most glorified whenever humans actually recover glory and are able to help creation recover glory, and that's what actually maxes out God's glory. So I'm wanting to help put glory in a larger framework. Paul um, describes glory actually in this way. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he speaks about the gospel of the glory of the Christ, the image of God. Uh, And so I pondered that language for a long time and looked at some other texts that would help unpack that for me. Um, And in so doing, I I develop a model that I call the glory cycle uh, that is based in scripture. But it begins with God and glory, that God is the one who's fully glorious. and, And there's an intrinsic glory to God, that there's nothing that could ever impeach his glory. Uh, And this is because it's connected to his very essence, like God by his very nature is merciful and just and shows loving kindness to us and so on and so forth. Right. But on the other hand, there is a way in which God's glory can be impeached because we may not ascribe glory to him. The Psalms call us call us out and they say, give honor to God, give glory to him, ascribe glory to him. Right. And that's because there's a recognition in the Bible that on the one hand, although God's glory can't be impeached in its intrinsic value, on the other hand, like there's a subjective dimension to glory because it has to do with reputation uh, or fame. And that mm-hmm, God's mm-hmm. reputation or fame is, is being eroded in the midst of the nations because people aren't seeing who God really is. 
So we have to be called to this glory to give God glory. Anyway, that's the beginning of the glory cycle. But then God actually gives us a portion of his glory. Our glory devolves onto humanity as part of our, our being made in his image. Being in the image of God means that we have a certain kind of glory that's attached to God's glory. Uh, and so as part of our human vocation, then we're, we're commanded by God to, uh, to steward creation and in so doing to actually carry his glory uh, to creation. So creation can experience God through us. It's part of how God designed creation. Creation doesn't function right. It ceases mm-hmm. to work properly when it's not given human stewardship. Like God made creation this way. And if God, um, if God doesn't want to just start over and just uh, like demolish creation, he has to work through human governance because creation is designed to work that way. But of course, then a sad story is that humans don't follow suit, right? right? We, we, uh, as God gives us the opportunity, we choose to um, disregard our state of glory. And instead uh, we give away our glory uh, by uh, choosing our own path, choosing what's right and wrong for ourselves. And so then in the midst of that, like the sad and debauched situation, right? God still provides a gift for us. It's the gift of the incarnate King. And that's what begins to reveal God's glory to us. Um, Notice in our premier statement about the incarnation in the new Testament, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. What does it say next? And we have seen his glory, Glory. right? And so the, the idea of Jesus coming in human flesh is so that actually we can see the glory. And in so doing, we can begin to put our allegiance behind this King, right? And in so doing, all of creation will begin to experience God's glory again. So then that's step five in the glory cycle after the glorious King comes is that we actually have a process of gazing on him. It's through our intentional gazing on the King that we come to be conformed to the King's glorious image. So that's part of our salvation. Part of our recovery is actually a process of glory restoration by contemplating the King and his Mm. good way of life. And in so doing, then finally, the glory cycle reaches an end with us coming to reign alongside Jesus as we co-reign with him then in glory. Um, And so anyway, that would be the complete glory cycle. Interesting. So that the ending, you know, I I keep on thinking of second Corinthians um, from glory to glory, right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. what's, what's that referring to? I've always, it's always been kind of a, um, like we're, we're, we're kind of thinking of like this world, but then also like the, the culminating, the sixth step. Is that, is that what we're thinking about? Like there's these various phases of glory. Yeah. There's, you know, there's scholarly debate around that, right. About what that, what that phrase might mean. Um, yeah. And it could be just a rhetorical upping right from glory okay. to glory. Um, and I would tend to see it that way um, that like that there's going to be a enhanced glory um, as, uh, as we come to be conformed to the image of King Jesus. Gotcha. So, but the, the final picture, like that final glorified state, is it, is it, we're thinking of that as like our glorification is that this, the idea of that sixth step? Yeah, I, I think it, I would be a little bit cautious about that. I mean, I think we can speak about it that way, but I think we, we need to remember that, of course, like that has sometimes been traditionally attached to like the beatific vision and being in heaven and that like somehow or another, like we're in the very presence of God and gazing on him. And so then we're, you know, therefore we're glorified. I'd be a little bit cautious about that. I'm wanting to say that the emphasis is really on new creation and on, on right. physical resurrection. Uh, and so like, as long as we're careful with what we mean by that, yeah, yeah I would be okay using that language of glorification. Um, yeah. So anyway, but the glory cycle is important because it helps us to see that God is not just saving us from something, but for something, right. Amen. That yeah. our, like, 
like we need to think about our salvation in a less self-centered way. We need to stop thinking so much about, okay, I personally have a sin problem. You have a sin problem. And so the gospel's purpose towards dealing with that sin problem. Well, it is purpose toward dealing with that sin problem, but it's purpose toward that for God's purposes, which, yeah, which involve yeah. you ruling creation for him, right? That you need to be restored into that position so that you can then bear his glory. And if we miss that part, we're really missing a key part of the salvation story. Um, that God's yeah. saving us for purposes. I love it. Like they're, they're, we're saved with an intention. So I keep on bringing up the Salvation Army, even though like my audience is filled with a lot of people from all sorts of the kind of pan Wesleyan community. But you might, like even when you have seen my dad in Quincy, he would have most likely most days of his life worn a Salvation Army uniform. And yes, um, he did. On his, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure if you saw him in the grocery store, he was wearing his uniform. No yes, doubt about he it. Did. <laughs> yes, he did. Yes, I never and, saw him out. I never saw him out of uniform. I'll put it that way. And you probably heard him long before you saw him too. Okay, sorry, I'm talking too much about my dad, uh, who I love. But he would wear that uniform and you have two S's on his collar. Now, you might think, and some would just think that just stands for Salvation Army. But generally, that's been understood to mean saved to serve. And like, and sometimes save to save, like both, both words, both like descriptions have been used, but the idea is that there is intention and there's instrumentation involved in being saved. And also it's kind of like a sense that you're not just, it's not just left there. There's, there's something more that needs to ha happen. So that salvation necessarily involves discipleship. <laughs> and I think yes. that that's what this glory cycle helps us see. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think any, any idea about salvation that doesn't deal seriously with discipleship is just flat out wrong, right? Like it's just a transactional, the idea that somehow or another, that, that all that's really necessary is that you believe in Jesus and his blood gets applied to you, um, just doesn't deal seriously with the, with the, the witness of the new Testament, right? That, yeah, that we are saved through a process of learning to take up our cross daily and following Jesus, um, and that it involves more than just a transaction. Now, the transaction is important in the sense that we we do make a decision. And when yeah. we do, like at that moment, then we're, we are like enveloped into the Holy Spirit community that is a part of God's people, right? There is a transaction in that sense. But uh, we have to see that it's not focused on the person, but it's on the, the person entering into the group, right? That is the, yeah. the group that is in the process of being saved itself. Right. Um, so what you like, you, you moved into the, the process of the, the company that is in the process of being saved. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's a very different than a kind of just a personal transaction. It's about a debt in your own personal account, getting satisfied or something like that. Yeah. Now, how do you think that this is this idea of the glory cycle and kind of think pointing to the why, how does that connect to the nuns and duns, so to speak? Well, uh, there's a there's a variety of ways it connects, and I, I, I go through some of the data in in that chapter, um, chapter six, uh, and the Barna Group's study suggests there are six specific reasons why people who are none, like, are not connecting to Christianity. So when my guess is Christians, like, why do non-Christians not want to be Christians? Well, there's actually professional sociological studies that have been done that actually show what they say this is at least we can at least see what like non-christians say about why they're not interested in becoming christians uh, the number one reason hypocrisy number one reason mm, yeah sure um and and so you know think about what a transactional gospel asks you to do and why it might lend itself to hypocrisy right a transactional gospel asks you to believe 
uh, or to we might press that a little farther to trust. Okay, believe a certain fact about the universe that Jesus died for your sins, right? And then like to uh, as you then contemplate that, you attend to that factoid, right? And then after you've attended to that factoid, then you you say, am I personally committed to that? Do do I trust that's true for me? Right. And if you do, then you get to count as one of the saved. Right. That's the kind of the transactions that's, that's happened. Um, and the problem is, how much of that did that require? It required this little tiny space in your brain right? to say, mm. do I attend to that fact? Do I right, right. actually trust it to be true for myself? Um, when we think about a bigger gospel and a truer gospel, right, that Jesus has become the king. And what does he demand from me? He demands my loyalty. Right. That's how I enter into a salvation. Uh, notice how that doesn't involve just your mind, but actually your body from the yeah. get-go, right? Um, it's all of you. you. There's no part of your life that you get to leave out, right? It's not about just having this little space that acknowledges a certain thing to be true and trusted a certain fact. You got all of you, right? Now, you're not going to be perfect, right? But you have to have an overall intention, a trajectory toward loyalty to the king, right? Your salvation is is connected to that. He's a forgiving king. You will fall short, right? But you get up again and you keep you keep trying to enact your loyalty to this king, right? And that through that process, you're actually transformed um, as that's all part of your um, salvation process. Notice how much less likely you are to be a hypocrite, right? If you're um, trying to enact loyalty to the king versus just believing, okay, Jesus died for my sins. So I guess if I sin some more, it doesn't really matter too much. Yeah, sure. Maybe I shouldn't well, because boy, he did so much for me, but but I, does it really matter? Like within a transaction yeah, sure. gospel, like, yeah, you just might as well keep sinning. Um, you know, it might be an affront to Jesus's, you know, like generosity, but well, <laughs> um, yeah. I'm and saying, so I think there's I something wrong. Yeah, I exactly. Did I did that a long time ago. I mean, I'm good. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. And so that's the danger. So, I mean, that would be one way in which we would see like, you know, this is maybe a good message for people who are nuns um, to, to hear or people who are done. Maybe they heard that message and they left the church because they're like, that doesn't really make sense. Right. Um, this doesn't right. really change me. I don't think my life is any better. Well, it's because your life's not better because salvation only comes through Jesus's kingship, right? You've got to submit to his kingship for it to work. Um, yeah. And so people who have left the church, I do wonder if they, if they heard a faulty gospel. Right. Um, a second, a second way I think it really helps um, is with issues of quantity versus quality. Um, and I think that um, one of the other reasons why the Barna group suggests that people aren't interested in the church or are leaving it is the sense that like Christians only want to make converts. Um, that that's mainly why they're interested in you. If you're a non-Christian, they're interested in you because they want to convert you, but they're right. not actually very interested in who you actually are. Um, and well, maybe that's partly because of our faulty gospel. If hmm. all that you need and all that I need is exactly the same, all we need is a little bit of Jesus's blood applied, right? Just apply a little blood. Yeah, sure. Right? If that's all we need, well, then how does that respect our unique qualities? Um, what if Andy Miller needs... Um, what if he needs God to do some perfecting work in him that's quite different than me? Um, yeah. what, if, what if your potentials and your capabilities are very different than mine, right? Like what if like the very best version of Andy Miller that could ever be looks quite different than the very best version of Matt Bates? I yeah, think they do, yeah. actually. That's part of the diversity of the body. And I think that um, a, a more holistic gospel helps us to realize that God is interested in saving all of us. And the quality of all of us, every single aspect of who we are and the quality of people that we are matters. Mm. Like a transactional gospel, all that matters is you got the label, right? You just yeah, you got yeah. the saved label. Um, Dallas Willard is particularly yeah. strong in speaking about the this. Imputed right? in part he, of, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and uh, I love Willard. I'm a huge Willard fan. Uh, but I think that uh, this helps us understand why uh, transactional gospel is just deeply faulty. Right. We God is interested in all of us. So, again, that would be another way in which having a, a more holistic gospel can help the nuns and the dons. I have more, much more I could say about that. But um, we'll, buy the book. Get the book, folks. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. The book. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm it's my tendency sometimes on the podcast is like I ask people all these questions. It's like, well, there's a reason I wrote the book, Andy. And it was the reason you wrote this book, too, is we want people to go out and get it. And um, again, it's Why the Gospel by Matthew Bates. Uh, There's some other helpful tools in there I think people could use in ministry. There's like this really kind of clear chapter where you talk, well, they're all not, not that one's clearer than the other, but uh, the malformed gospels. And that, I feel like that could be a, a good sermon series that people could apply that there. And then also, I love what you do. I, I, lo I love the way you walk back through atonement theories in light of these ideas. And I think that that can be refreshing to people. But I want to ask one more question, at least, that will, um, uh, since I've read Salvation by Allegiance alone, I wondered with the idea of taking the word pistis and using it um, like as allegiance, when it, when, when can you not take the word faith or when it's pistis yeah. and translate it allegiance? Like there's times yeah, where you, it's like, it seems sure. to work, but not every time. And, oh, and yeah, it's been yeah, helpful yeah, to yeah, me. You, yeah. Yeah. You can't always do that for sure. Yeah. I mean, the word, the word pistis means in its root trust to trustworthiness. Right. And so, I mean, there are times when it means like, you know, whenever Jesus is performing a healing, Right, right. Um, and you know, uh, people are putting their faith in in his healing power. I don't think that works very well as allegiance, right? And I don't think that anyone would want to translate it that way. Uh, so, I mean, we just have to realize the word pistis is a lot bigger, more plastic word than anything that we have in English, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, I think that we need to look, especially at the royal framework. Like that's like the question that you should have in mind whenever you're thinking about what pistis means. Um, or what faith means when you're reading the New Testament is especially to like kind of pay attention to frameworks and realize that um, on the one hand, you know, um, you know, uh, yeah, an analogy might be, uh, you know, a word goat, right? In sports, the goat means something. It means the greatest of all time, right? right. But um, on a farm, goat means something very different, right? Yeah. And so like similarly in the New Testament, right? When there's a certain context in which uh, believing certain facts about the universe or believing in someone's healing power or trusting it, well, yeah, that's that's how we, we should, should translate belief, trust, whatever it might be. But when we have a royal context, right? And we're about, right. we're responding to a king, uh, we should be aware that um, that the word pistis frequently means uh, loyalty and allegiance in the New Testament time period. And that's uncontested. I mean, there would be no New Testament scholar that would contest that that it, faith frequently can and does mean loyalty or allegiance. Gotcha. That's helpful. Thank you. All right. My last question mm -hmm. is this. So all right, my podcast is called More to the Story. Uh, so what is there more? You've done, this is your fourth podcast interview today. This is the time the, the book launched. A lot's going on for you. What's something that you don't get to talk about normally? Is there more to the story of Matthew Bates? Oh, let's see. What don't I get to talk about very often? Um, well, I don't get to talk about how awesome my wife is. Not many people will ask me about that. Well, tell us about really, her. Yeah. I mean, so, yep. Sarah Bates, uh, anyway, uh, mother of seven children. How awesome is that? Amen. Right? Um, there you go. She um, she just gives so sacrificially and is a kind of behind the scenes person. She does not like to be in the spotlight. Um, and she's probably mortified if she knew I was talking about her on a podcast. Um, <laughs> and uh, she just really faithfully gives herself away so that we all can thrive, all of us, us kids, so I can be busy doing a podcast right now. 
Um, yeah. And she, she just really delights in doing that. And, um, and really she's a remarkable woman. So um, yeah. So I'll, I'll give a shout out to Sarah as something I don't get to talk about as often as I should. All right. So your kids, tell me their ages. Seven, uh, 17 to five. Okay. Gotcha. So we, have a, uh, we have someone who's just about to start high, uh, senior, senior year in high school. And then uh, we have someone just entering kindergarten. Wow. That's great. Well, Matthew, yeah. thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for, for your scholarly work and for this work you're doing in these kind of more popular practical level books. They've been, uh, as I've indicated, uh, had a big impact on me and I'm thankful. I'm thankful for Sarah giving you time yeah. to make these type of things happen for the good of the church and for the kingdom. So appreciate your time, Matthew. Appreciate you, Andy. Thank you.